With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. First of all, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has listened to Women of My Generation since its launch in January. Your feedback means the world and reminds me of how much these kind of stigmatised discussions are needed. Many of you can relate to topics I've covered so far, and the consensus seems to be that everyone is craving more representation of different bodies in media. This episode is the last episode of season one, so I'm going to have a bit of a summer break, rest, and find more inspiring people to have conversations with. I couldn't have wished for a better guest than Sheena Howard to end the season with. Again, we focus on representation, and some of a lot of the issues I've covered before. We talk about the LGBTQ plus community, domestic abuse within same-sex relationships, being black in a predominantly white industry, and the importance of role models in order to even dare believe that you can achieve your dream. Thanks to everyone who have so generously shared their own journeys and deepest thoughts. If you listeners have any suggestions on topics or guests to hear in the future, please reach out to me. The best way to do so is to send me a message on Instagram where I'm called Feckman. So that is F-E-C-K-M-A-N. Or you can visit my website for further contact details. It's www.fannybeckman.com. And as you probably know by now, my name is Fanny Beckman and this is Women of My Generation. Hello, Sheena. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Mm, and first of all, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. I mean, we just spoke a bit before we started recording, but when you wrote your email and all so resonated with what my work and what you do. Uh, so thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you. And I, I think we have a lot of um, intersections and connections going on in both of our backgrounds. So it was wonderful to talk to someone um like you yeah for sure I mean first of all you have a very impressive CV you're both a filmmaker and a writer and you use your talent to raise awareness of different issues that you face in your everyday life exactly and um what led to start in the beginning of your career as an author so in 2013 you released a book called uh, Black Comics Politics of Race and Representation which you later received an award for. So could you just 
please tell us what this book is about and what led you to write it. Sure. So that was actually the first book that I ever published. And like you said, it's called Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation. And it went on to win an Eisner Award at San Diego Comic-Con, which is the big sort of international Comic-Con here in the States. And I became the first Black woman ever to win an Eisner Award for this book. And the book was basically on... uh, how race, particularly African-Americans, are represented in comics. So that's comic books, comic strips. But it also focused a little bit on gender representation and the history of gender representation in comics as well. And the book all started from my dissertation when I was in graduate school. I actually was interested in a boondocks, in, in the comic strip, the boondocks, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my favorite comic strips in in uh, the 2000s, around 2007. And so I looked at the gender dynamics in the comic strip, and I looked at the African-American communication dynamics in the comic strip. And when I was doing my research for that comic strip, I realized that there weren't any books on the history of African-Americans' contributions to the comics industry. And I felt like it was really important after writing that dissertation that I at least try to start filling that void because it's important for people to be able to go to a library and pick up a book that actually talks about the contributions of people who are not just, you know, straight white males in some of these industries that have a lot of cultural barriers. Yeah, of course. Was it something that you missed yourself when growing up? So when I was growing up, interestingly enough, I didn't, I wasn't, into comics. You know, I didn't read comics. I didn't read comic strips. And I think that's interesting in and of itself, because I think typically um, people in our lives tend to kind of expect boys to read comics because they're thinking about the superhero genre where there's, you know, um, a lot of action, a lot of fighting, a lot of masculinity. And so I think part of the story is that even as a little girl, I wasn't sort of introduced to comics. Um, and I think people just didn't expect little girls to be interested in comics when there's a huge market for um, female readers um, and viewers of comics content. Mm. So when did you start to get into comics then? So when I was in, in graduate school, I was really young. I was 23 years old. And when it came time for me to write my dissertation, I really didn't have an idea of what I wanted to write my dissertation on, but I knew I wanted to do something around representation um, because I was acutely aware of how representation matters and how it can affect um, minority populations when their stories are not being told or, or when their stories are being told in harmful ways. So when it came time to write my dissertation, I kind of just looked around my environment and said, well, what am I interested in now? What am I reading now? What am I watching now? And I had been reading the Boondocks comic strip um, during that time period. And I was really, really, really into it. And it wasn't until I actually wrote um, my dissertation on the Boondocks comic strip that I realized that it had some really horrible gender dynamics in that strip. And so just goes to show sometimes we're consuming things and we're, we don't, we're not even consciously aware of the ways it might be creating a social script about how we treat women, how we treat minorities and et cetera. Yeah, definitely. But now with your own comics, is that for children or is it for adults or who do you turn to? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the comics that I write, I, I tend to write things 
that just inspire me. So if I'm moved to write a story, I'm going to write it, whether it's a comic book for teenagers or a comic book or graphic novel for adults. And the good thing is um, people have been coming to me to write comics that are perfectly aligned with my background. So the first comic book that I ever wrote, it was co-written with um, David Walker and it was it's a comic book called Superb and the superhero actually has Down syndrome. So it was one of one of the only representations of a superhero with Down syndrome. And the story is a, it's a coming of age story about Jonah who has Down syndrome and his best friend Kayla who's a black female character. And of course they're superheroes so there's action and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also about their relationship and their friendship. And so the publisher came to me to be the writer the co-writer for that story because of my background, because they, they they knew what I was trying to do as far as combining art and activism and representation and that sort of thing. And since then, people have just been asking me to write projects that kind of are in that same vein, things that are going to challenge the way we think, things that are going to document history and things that are about sort of underrepresented populations. Yeah, definitely. Um, but when you grew up yourself, did you turn to any other kind of media? You mentioned that you weren't really into comics. Um, so did you turn to any other kind of media media to get that representation? Definitely. So for me, um, the 90s was a, a, a pretty cool period because I feel like we had um, a lot of good shows that resonated with me in some ways, but didn't resonate with me in other ways. So we had things like the Cosbys. We had, you know, shows like... Um, and live in color and, and those type of shows that represented African-Americans. But on the other side, it didn't represent parts of my identity that were super, super important. Like I didn't grow up like a Cosby family. You know, my parents weren't rich. I, I was raised by a single mother. You know, we didn't um, have a huge house. I didn't have parents who had college degrees. Um, you know, I also am a member of the LGBTQ community. So while in the 90s, I feel like there was pretty, um, some representation of African Americans in the African American family, those representations still didn't speak to my identity. And so that has really shaped the projects that I work on, whether it's film, comics, writing novels. You know, I want, I, th I think if you want your story to be told, everybody's story deserves to be told. And I don't think I don't think that it's healthy um, in society to just be repeating the same dominant narratives about family structures, about what women should and shouldn't do, what they should and shouldn't look like, these ideals of beauty and all of those types of things. I think it's important to challenge the social scripts that we're fed all of our lives. Oh, yeah, 100%. And you mentioned now as well that you're part of the LGBTQ plus community and you create art around that as well. So could you just share, um, just tell us a bit about that work as well? I'm really intrigued to hear about it. Sure. So um, my latest book, Nina's Whisper, is about bringing awareness to same-sex domestic abuse, um, which is something that unfortunately um, the LGBTQ community doesn't want to talk about. And then the larger community um, doesn't, in my opinion, does not have the tools to talk about. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do now is just bring to light that, you know, just because you're in a same sex relationship doesn't mean you're not suffering from domestic abuse, right? Domestic abuse is about power and control. And that's really genderless. You know, a woman can abuse a woman the same way a man can abuse a man. And 
you know, the social social script that we're fed is that abuse is just a man abusing a woman. And in the United States, there are CDC reports and human rights campaign reports that are showing that rates of domestic abuse are actually higher in LGBTQ um, relationships than they are in heterosexual relationships. Yet, none of my friends ever talked to me about uh, same-sex domestic abuse until I started asking around when I was writing this book, Nina's Whisper. Mm. So did you did you know the, these facts before you started writing it or was it something that you kind of found out along when you when you asked your friends and did your research? Right. So, um, no, I, I didn't know the statistics until I started doing research for the book. And for the book, the first thing I did was I started to ask people, hey, do you have um, any stories to share about same-sex domestic abuse? I think this is something we should talk about. And people started reaching out to me in my inbox, DMs, Facebook messages. Um, close friends of mine started telling me about instances of domestic abuse that they experienced. And these are people that I've been friends with for years, and this stuff had never had never come up. And then I started to look at the statistics to try to put all these stories that I was hearing into perspective. And sure enough, um, reports show that uh, 44% of a lesbians experience inter, um, intimate partner violence. 44%. So that means almost, you know, half of the lesbian population has experienced um, intimate partner violence. Mm. It's so, so horrible. But it's like you said, because I, I used to volunteer at the women's shelter. And as soon as you kind of start speaking up about it and share your knowledge or um, what you've heard, then just like you, people turn to you and people are so, so keen to share their experience and talk about it because it's been so stigmatized and it still is very stigmatized um but everyone just kind of wants to talk about it because it's such a such a dark theme but if no one knows about it then we can't do anything to change it either Exactly. And um, yeah, I listened to one of your episodes where you talked about the work that you you were doing um, at the shelter. And it's so true. Once once you start giving people an avenue, a venue and a safe place to start talking about the same sex abuse that they, they've experienced, then they start talking about it. And I think that's that's super interesting. So for me, I'm just trying to put it out there, put the topic out there, start a conversation, create some awareness, because this is a public health crisis, you know, right now with stay at home orders, although they're being um, lifted in the states, people have been locked at home with their abusers. And sometimes when law enforcement responds to um, these domestic abuse calls, particularly in same-sex relationships, they're not coding it as domestic abuse, right? To them, it's just, oh, two women living together or, or two men living together. And so sometimes it's not getting the, the same response um, as other instances of domestic abuse. Yeah, definitely. I remember like one story or a couple uh, or a woman I met at the shelter who um, shared her own experience. And when she went to the hospital, her her partner was there, but the doctor just assumed that that was a friend, but she actually went to the hospital uh, because she had injuries that this partner had caused, but still the doctor let the partner in so she wasn't able to to speak up and, and tell the doctor what actually happened because she was so scared. And again, that's just prejudice in, in the society that um, 
same-sex relationship don't have domestic abuse. So it's actually dangerous if we don't spread knowledge about it. Exactly. And and so the warning signs and red flags that a doctor in that situation might pick up on might not even occur to that doctor because it's two women, right? If if a woman came in there with a man, they might pick up on some of those red flags that this woman needs help and possibly um, these injuries have came from this man. However, two women or two men show up and those same red flags don't occur to them because of their preconceived notions of what an abuser looks like. Mm. And with this latest book, is it a novel or is it more of a, you know, sharing your knowledge or how is it, how how have you written it? Yeah, so I think about it, uh, it's it's definitely a novel. So fictional characters, fictional place, fictional scene setting, everything's fictional in the book. But I did listen to the stories of others. I did do my due diligence in researching um, the ways that abuse take place and the layers of same-sex domestic abuse. And I myself am a survivor of domestic abuse. So um, the emotional beats in the story from the main character um, are definitely emotional beats that I had insight to because uh, because I am a survivor of domestic abuse at the hands of another woman. Mm. Is that why you wanted to write it in the first place? Absolutely. You know, sometimes when you're a victim of domestic abuse, you can feel really alone because nobody's talking about it. And it's not until you talk about it, it's not not it's not until you combine your um, art with activism, like like one of your podcasts is is titled that then you can start to help others right and and in helping others you're also helping yourself particularly if you're in an abusive relationship or if you're um you have been a victim of abuse yeah for sure and like we both uh do we we raise awareness of 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 different issues via our art and as we previously mentioned you've also written books about the black queer community and mm-hmm. uh, the identity um so and you you make films as well we haven't really spoken about that yet so please tell me all about it sure in 2016 i released a film called remixing colorblind that premiered at um, one of the theaters in philadelphia pennsylvania um and it actually premiered to a sold out theater And the film was about how the educational system shapes our perception of race. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And others. And so I interviewed high school students about um, how they thought um, the educational system had shaped their 
perceptions of race and who they were. I, I interviewed professors um, about how um, higher education influences how we think about um, race and racial dynamics. And um, a lot of the documentary talked about sort of the ideology of being colorblind and what what being colorblind means and, and, and how that relates to the educational system. Is that like from your own experience as well? How did educational system affect you? Absolutely. So I, I, I was, like I said, I did my PhD when I was 23. So by the time I was 26, I already had a PhD and I was, um, you know, becoming a full-time professor at, at a university. And, you know, academe is extremely white. There's a, there's a very low percentage of um, black female uh, tenure track professors in the States. And so I was starting to reflect on all of my experiences and all of my educational training. One, to answer the question, you know, how did I get here? You know, what was my path? Um, but two, to understand how did my path help me navigate race? You know, how is it helping me navigate this all white space of academe? Um, and so in, in the film, I actually went back to all of the schools that I graduated with and interviewed students from all of those, those schools. So I went to Howard University where I did my PhD, which is an HBCU and an HBCU is a historically black university or college. So, um, where I graduated from with my PhD, you know, was all black students, you know, um, all black students majoring in all different types of things, the sciences, communication, whatever, engineering. Um, a lot of times we're fed this script that, you know, there are no black scientists, there are no black engineers. Um, but going to a historically black college, I saw that that narrative and that script was, you know, completely false. You know, I went to school with thousands of people, black people that are that are majoring in these things and getting degrees in these things. So so the, the film was me trying to understand how all these educational experiences led me to the path um, that I that I that I landed on as a full time professor, because I've also attended predominantly white schools that impacted me in different ways. Yeah, and there's this old saying that you can't be what you can't see, uh, which many, um, especially women within the feminist movement, talk about. Uh, but so I'm amazed that you still did, did it, like even though we talked now about you lacked or your misrepresentation in terms of LGBTQ+, and in terms of uh, black people in, their, um, in the profession that you wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. How did you find that strength or what motivated you to still do it, even though you didn't have that many role models within it? That's so funny you say that because I didn't realize that I could be a professor until I went to Howard University and saw other black professors. It literally never crossed my mind. When I was young, I wanted to be a teacher, but through college, I knew I didn't want to teach young people. I knew I wanted to teach I knew I didn't want to teach young people. And so I stayed in school to get a PhD because I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. Um, I knew I needed to go to a historically black college because I needed that experience. You know, I needed certain parts of my identity uh, validated. And like, like you said, you can't be what you can't see. And so once I went to Howard and saw other black professors, that's when it clicked like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. And I had models to show me how to do it, as opposed to before I went to Howard University. Um, 
I had two black teachers in all of my years at the university between undergraduate and um, master's level training, two black teachers. Wow. But they clearly impacted you and, and, and um, you know, showed you that it kind of was possible to, to move forward and to get your degree that you, you have. Exactly. But yeah, you are a professor now and you work with the Department of Communication and Journalism at Rider University. Um, do you talk about representation with your students today? Oh, absolutely. Right now at Rider University, I'm actually in the process of creating a comics and cartoon studies program, which will actually have a minor so students can minor in comics and cartoon studies. And a lot of that is going to be not only about how to make comics and and how to work in this industry, but it's also going to be about representation and the importance of representation when you're creating content and your responsibility as a creator when you're creating content. But in all of my classes, no matter what I'm teaching, I try to include the importance of representation um, in my classes. So I teach a lot of different classes. I teach public speaking. I teach interpersonal communication. Um, That's a particular class that we talk a lot about culture and cultural competency. Um, I teach legal and ethical issues in communication. Um, So in all of my classes, I would say I definitely try to incorporate real life examples um, and um, the importance of representation. Yeah, because it's so, so important. I mean, working on this podcast, no matter what topic, it's all it's all about that, like seeing yourself represented in media, impact your self-esteem so, so much. Yes, and that's why it's important to have a variety of representations of groups, you know, not just harmful representations, but the full human experience. If you're going to represent the lesbian community or, um, you know, a superhero with Down syndrome. You want to be able to try to represent a variety um, of those groups' experiences. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise you just create stereotypes. Right. Exactly. Uh, But all your students, are they eager to work alongside you to get a broader representation within the media sector? Are they as excited about this as you are? Yes, I think connecting um, these, first of all, letting students have a voice in the classroom goes a long way, right? Um, Students know in my classes, you don't have to think like me, um, but I will challenge you and and you're free to challenge me. And in those healthy discussions, your opinion is not what matters, but how you can support your opinion with facts is, is what's really important. And so I think students typically enjoy, um, that perspective in the classroom. You know, everybody has a voice. Everybody can share their perspective. We all have different backgrounds that are going to bring us to a topic in a different way, but be prepared to support your opinion um, with facts along along with life experience. But don't think that your life experience um, fits into what actual statistics say. Um, so that approach has worked wonderfully um, for me in the classroom. Mm. And that's so true. Like everyone wants to be listened to and wants to create their own voice. And I think with social media today, it's it's incredible how many opportunities it gives you, but also it can be difficult to find your own voice and be actually be heard. Exactly. And that's why it's such a beautiful opportunity for me to work with young people in the classroom. Um, that's why I love teaching. Um, that's why I love being being an educator, because you 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 get you get to um, you know, you get to, to shape 
um, a lot of um, how they can go about thinking in healthy and productive ways that are not harmful to the people that are living around them, but not maybe not living in the home with them, right? Um, you know, there are different communities experiencing different things, right? And the more you have empathy for different communities, the better off the world would be. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, you work with younger people and you actually provide that representation that you kind of missed yourself when you were young. So that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of advice do you give to people who want to go um, in your tracks and who want to challenge um, the industry as it is? As it is? Because it is really difficult when we live in a society where it's been um, like different norms and they've been around for as long as we can remember and people start saying well it's always been like that why change it but actually go against it and say no this is not um, the world that I want to live in how do you get that strength to do it what, what's your advice I think the main thing that's really important is first you have to have confidence in yourself you know people can't give you confidence but they can sure take your confidence away mm-hmm. um, so trying to have confidence in yourself and then being confident enough to follow your, your, your passion and follow the things as far as a career or the things that you want to create that bring you joy and feel right to you. Um, And I think if you, you follow that, that passion, right? Like I was saying earlier, you know, I, I write and create things that move me. If it doesn't move me, I'm not doing it. Right. Um, and so if, if you follow that path, um, I think one, you'll be, you'll be a happier and healthier individual and two people will graduate gravitate towards the things that you are putting out into the world because it's coming from that place, um, inside, inside you. Right. And, and that, that in itself gives you, gives you confidence. So that would, that would be, be my advice. Um, be confident, be confident in yourself and follow the things that you're you're passionate about even if they don't make sense to anybody else yeah well how did you get that confidence how did you how did you get so confident yourself um you know it's a work in progress um you know I still you know being being in the public sphere you know you can look at you can look at some of the comments under some of the videos and things that I do they're not all they're they're not all people that are supporting me you know um so it's a work in progress. Um, I definitely had keep keeping people around me that are my support system, you know, family, friends, um, and, and cutting out the people in your life that are not bringing you joy and not support systems. Um, focusing on, you know, the fans and followers that I have that are appreciating my work. Um, just focusing on the people that are helping you get to the next level instead of, it's so easy to focus on the negative, right? It's so easy. You can get a, you can get a hundred positive comments. And then that one negative comment is what's the one that you focus on. And so just training your brain um, to focus more on the positive and less on the negative. And, and that's not, that's not easy for me to do all the time either. You know, that's a, that's a day to day sort of um, struggle for me as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, uh, you know, again, I've had guests in this podcast before, which raise exactly this, the importance of surrounding yourself with people, not necessarily that always agrees with you, mm-hmm. but who shows you the, the respect that you deserve and who, um, you know, who helps you develop and who embraces everything you do and encourages you to do your thing. 
Exactly. Exactly. And people who are supporting the fact that, you know, you, you're trying to be the best version of yourself. Right. And, and, and especially as women, not keeping people around us that are making us feel bad for the sort of activism that we want to do or the work that we want to do. Um, but people that are supporting us to reach our best selves. Yeah, for sure. And now you've released your, your book and what's next for you? What, what's in the pipeline for you? So I have a lot of exciting things coming up. I definitely want to try to get Nina's Whisper adapted into a movie or a series on screen, because I think that although it's a book and, it, it, you know, the, the storytelling is very powerful, um, we need visuals, right? Visuals are what's going to help create that awareness around same-sex domestic abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So if we can't see domestic abuse in same-sex relationships, then it's easier for us to ignore it and to think that it's not happening. So definitely getting this book on screen is um, really important to me and something I'm going to try to pursue. I'm also... Um, doing some graphic novel adaptations for a couple of universities. And mm-hmm. so, you know, those projects are going to lead me into probably the next year or two. Mm, that's really exciting. And it got me thinking, I, I don't think I've ever seen same-sex domestic abuse on screen before. Have you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah, it definitely makes a question. Even like domestic abuse in general, it's never really talked about as a problem. It, it, sometimes it's there, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really dig deep into why it exists and, and how what we can do to change it. Exactly, exactly. So would you do it yourself, uh, the film as well? Oh, no, no, no. I would, I would definitely want this to be done by a production, a studio, because mm-hmm. um, it would have to be done right. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited about, you know, um, about seeing this because I definitely think that it should be made, turned into film. And I think there's a need for it as well. You know, we've seen the society has kind of changed slowly um, with hashtag me too, changed a lot, um, not just within the film industry, but in society as well. And I think it will kind of affect other issues and um in this society as well we start to talk about the things that we don't like mm-hmm. so I'm kind of like I usually say I'm carefully optimistic about the future that we do see changes happening but it just goes a bit too slow still yeah and you know if history tells us anything it tells us that change is slow and oftentimes when you make progress um, you you oftentimes take a step back as well, especially when we're talking about political, societal, and cultural changes. Um, that's the frustrating part about it. But you have to keep on pressing on, and you you create the building blocks for somebody to come behind you and you know keep the ball rolling. And that's really you know we're only here on Earth for a moment in time. So whatever whatever impact you want to have, right? What you're really doing is getting the ball rolling for someone else. We're, we're building. It's all about building um, to um, you know create a bigger movement that's bigger than you. Yeah, that's so true. And that's, I think that's a great way to end this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. I'm, I'm really inspired to keep going and to keep making uh, art that is about activism. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs> mm-hmm.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.